Ha, <laughs> we here. Big fish shit. Ooh, ooh. Welcome to the podcast. Hope y'all enjoy it. Hope y'all learn something. And most importantly, we hope y'all elevate. Let's get uh-huh. it. Big fish, hit a big lick. We gon' bet it right back and hit a big flip. We been up for a minute and we still lit. Get them cats going top, but we don't feel shit. We just giving y'all gems y'all can live with. Elevate your mind, never mind all the bullshit. Finna talk about stocks, we ain't worry about ops. First get the bread up, then buy back the whole block. Ten toes down, we ain't never gonna stop. I'm a man of my word, I ain't never gonna flop. If I said it, then I meant it. Real ones gonna respect it, and it's still OG. It's in me, I'm represented. Ooh, ooh, Big Fish-ish, y'all know what it is, we got the Big Fish Podcast, and we have a very special guest, Alex Rasek, and Alex is one of those people that I've met through a brother and sister of mine, he's a brother of theirs through faith, and Alex is definitely a brother of mine, if you're a brother of them, I'm not sure if everybody got to tap into the podcast with Dr. Shaga DeNoble, um, Dr. Pete DeNoble, her husband, also chimed in a little bit as well. But Alex is a brother of theirs, and I'm super excited. We've been talking about this for a while, and we're finally here. And Alex is a mental health therapist. And obviously, with mental health being such a hot topic right now, um, we always hear about it, but we're not necessarily um, talking about it on a high level. I feel like people just throw stuff out there, and you know, we're kind of having these uh, basic conversations without a proper understanding of the foundation of mental health. So we're super excited to have you on. And without further ado, um, Alex, you know, uh, thank you, thank you for being here. It's great to be here, David. Great to be on the Big Fish Podcast. We've um, so you and I have talked a lot offline, and we've had some uh, pretty deep, intense convos. Hopefully, we can. Uh, talk a little bit about those and um, really just give the audience some information. Um, this is going to be one where I'm asking a lot more questions probably than normal. I uh, just really want to get you know your insight on mental health, your insight with your background that we'll dive into, but you have such a, a unique background that touches so many different industries that are super relevant right now. We're excited. So um, why, don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, um, what made you get into the mental health space, and where you're living right now? Yeah, sure, sure. So I, I was born and raised uh, in New Jersey on the East Coast uh, pretty much my entire life. You know, I had a lot of friends who went to uh, Montclair. I see that Montclair jersey in your background there, you know. Um, born and raised there, and uh you know, so growing up, my dad was a, was a physics and electrical engineering professor. Um, I come from an immigrant background. My parents are Persian. They were both born in Iran. And my father came here when he was about uh, 15 or 16. And a lot of hardship, a lot of difficult things that he experienced in his life. As, you know, somebody who's not really white and somebody who's from an immigrant background, put himself through school, became a physics professor. So I always had a fascination with, with science and how the world works, how the world operates. And so, um, you know, as I grew up, I eventually found myself attending undergrad college and going into biochemical engineering. 
So I went into there, finished my undergrad degree, um, went to go work for a large uh, pharmaceutical company for about seven or eight years, uh, developing cancer medicines there and manufacturing cancer medicines uh, at that large pharmaceutical company. Um, did that for a couple of years and was dissatisfied on a lot of different levels, just not happy with the industry, as well as on some personal levels myself as well. So I started to investigate other career options and I landed into mental health. And uh, to make a long story short, you know, I went back to graduate school, got some graduate degrees in clinical mental health counseling and became a therapist, basically. Now, wow. there's a lot more detail in between that whole story. Right. Don't worry. We're going to get it out. We're going to get it out. <laughs> We're going to get it out. But um, That's the elevator pitch. There, there we go. And what, what an elevator pitch because uh, we're going to, without going into too much detail on who, you know, you were working with when it comes to the pharmaceutical company, um, I have a lot of questions with that. You know, obviously, we all just came out of uh, a pandemic. You know, we came out of a pandemic that was pretty divisive, um, divisive in, you know, how to treat certain things, um, divisive in, you know, how people should be allowed or forced to, you know, do certain things, take certain medicines. And you having that background, I, I want to I wanna dive into a little bit more uh, how you think about, like, what are, what are your feelings on the overall pharmaceutical industry? Because to make the transition from pharmaceuticals mm -hmm to mental health, mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you know, as, as pharmaceutical is supposed to be health care, right? It's supposed to be caring, you know, for somebody's uh -huh. health, uh -huh. mental health. We obviously know that that's caring for somebody's mental health, but what, what I want to dig in a little deeper as far as with the pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to add, by the way, one thing I forgot to mention. So I, you know, I moved from New Jersey, um, after getting married, and now I'm in the West Coast, living in Oregon at this time, where I've been the last four or five years or so. So your mental um, health has improved. That's what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> in some ways, it has. <laughs> Other ways, I'm not so sure. <laughs> but no, please continue. Sorry for throwing you off. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, in my opinion, the, the pharmaceutical industry is very complicated, um, especially sorting these things out in today's society where there seems to be a lot of black and white thinking where things have to be either all this way or all that way. And all the subtleties and nuances is really being lost in, in, in the discourse, the discussions. So for example, on one side, there's some individuals who might feel that pharmaceutical companies are purely evil and are purely out for gain and profit and self-interest, right? On the other side, there might be people who have the exact opposite extreme view, right? That pharmaceutical companies are the best thing in the world and they're going to save everybody. And we should, you know, you should go out right away and take whatever medication they throw at you. You know, those are, those are two extreme views. Um, so as a member of the Baha'i faith and as a former engineer scientist and as a mental health therapist now, and just as a human being, I always try to look for where the truth is to the best of my ability, knowing that I don't possess the truth. I don't have the truth, but I try my best progressively to look for it wherever it is. Um, there's a lot of problems in the pharmaceutical industry that I saw when I was there. 
Um, part of the issue, I think, is that the pharmaceutical industries it goes this and this goes into a much wider systemic thing, David. And just right. stop me if I'm if we don't want to go into this. No, area. no, we want to go there. <laughs> it goes into a much bigger societal systemic thing. Um, you know, pharmaceutical industries are informed by the medical disease model, and this is a model that essentially says whenever you have an illness or a disease, that illness or disease is primarily biological in nature. And the only thing that can cure a disease or an illness is a drug, is a pill or a drug, according to this philosophy. And this is deeply, deeply embedded and baked into our medical system. Okay, so the people who are prescribing these medications are not the pharmacies, they're the doctors. Okay, so it's all connected. So the pharmacies are, are I feel, taking advantage of patient vulnerabilities a lot of the time. Um, for example, in the area of cancer, you know, if you're sick and you're dying of a, you know, stage three type of lymphoma or particular type of cancer, and there's only one or two medications on the market available to treat that cancer, and those medications cost $20,000 a month, you've got two choices. From what you're told, either you die or you take the medication and that gives you some hope or extends your life. What do you do? You know, and Most so the people are going to try to scratch and do whatever they can to pay all that money, go in debt, and then you know things just go downhill from there. Yeah, yeah, right. But it's not it's not realistic for people paying these kinds of exorbitant fees and prices. Um, it seems to be the case that there's a lot of price gouging going on in this industry, and they charge ridiculous prices for a lot of things because they can. The simple reason that they can. So in a, in a sense, it's taking advantage of someone else's vulnerability. So these are these are some of the negative aspects. Um, one thing I observed directly in the industry when I was there uh, over seven or eight years, David, um, when you develop a new drug, it's a big black box. It's a big mystery as to where the price comes from. I was working with directors. I was an engineer, but I was working with the directors and we'd have board meetings with various executives of the company where I worked. And during my entire eight year time, we launched a few new cancer medicines. Nobody could tell you where the price came from. The price was a few thousand dollars per dose and a dose is one vial. You take one dose a month. I'm talking like tens of thousands of dollars for a dose. And whenever you ask, how did we come up with this price? it was a very strange response that you would get from people. Nobody had a clear answer from where this price came from. It, it almost looked like they pulled it out of thin air and just said, let's charge $20,000. That sounds good. Because it certainly wasn't based on the, the manufacturing cost. Because if you calculated the cost of manufacturing or producing, and I was directly involved in a lot of that, some of these medications the price does not justify the cost. The price is way, way, way higher than what it takes to actually make the medication. Now, to be fair, it is very expensive to produce pharmaceuticals. They're not cheap. But still, relatively speaking, when you compare the prices that are being charged, compared to the price that it takes to manufacture and produce these things, a lot of the times, it just doesn't add up. And you touched on something 
you know, when you, when you're talking about pricing, you know, we, it's to me being in healthcare, you know, I deal more on the surgery side, orthopedic surgeons, um, those type of surgeries. And whenever I talk to a family member about going to see a doctor, most people have this, you know, pre you just think that doctors are honest. Everybody mm-hmm. in healthcare is super mm-hmm. honest. If they say, take this pill, take this pill. I remember being down in South Carolina I'm with my uncles and aunts, and they were having a discussion over dinner about all the pills that they take for certain things. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, you just ordered fried chicken. You just ordered all this <laughs> fried stuff. You're eating all this stuff. I said, the, the, the medicine is the food. Like, the, uh-huh. <laughs> stop eating the food. You're taking medicine to eat the food. And nobody's telling you. And it's the doctor's not telling you to just don't eat this food. Right. And, and because they trust their doctor so much, that's what makes it so dangerous to me, whether it's a pharmaceutical company or anybody else in healthcare, because these are supposed to be trusted sources. It's mm-hmm. not supposed to be business first and that be prioritized when it comes to healthcare, at least from a moral perspective, okay. I would think. I, I would completely agree with that. I would completely agree with that, right? But the issue becomes, it's kind of like, okay, well, where do you draw the line? Because there are some medicines that are legitimate for certain illnesses or diseases that are, that are legit. How do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference between the, how do you sort through this? To tell the difference between the nonsense, things that are pushed that might not be necessary, that you might not need, versus something that is a legitimate medicine that you might actually need that can save your life or improve the quality of your life, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's the other side of the argument, the other side of the equation, that there obviously is, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. So there are obvious problems within the pharmaceutical industry, and we're just touching upon the tip of the iceberg here, by the way. There's tons and tons of problems with this industry, in my opinion, but... Do they still do some good for humanity? Yeah, they do. They do. They do produce a lot of medicines that help lots and lots of people. So it's not it's not a clear yes or no. It's not a clear good versus evil story, right? As many things in life are not. And that goes back to the black and white that you initially spoke about. Right. Where one person may be on one side because, and, and a lot of it comes down to what what is our experience? Right. Know, what has our experience shown us? So me... When I know that I've seen, you know, if I see if I see a bunch of orthopedic surgeons all the time scrambling to make money and scrambling, talking about reimbursements rather than them talking about their patient's recovery, in my head, it's always, you know, drilled in to where now when my parents go to see an orthopedic surgeon and they say, oh, you may have to have surgery or, oh, you may have. No, 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 no. You don't have to have surgery. They're lying. You know, and it's like I can't, you know, I know great orthopedic surgeons obviously you know pete you know pete's one of them Uh um but i can't trust that every single doctor is going to be like pete so it's like how like you said how do we figure out what's good for us what's bad for us right like like how that's a that's an excellent Mm. question and i I mean i don't have the answer to that but Mm. all i can do is share a few thoughts um i i grapple with that question a lot in different areas of life you know um the issue of trust, a lot of it really comes down to trust because we're living in a society that is very phony or seems to be very phony or inauthentic in a lot of ways. And so trust is a very authentic thing. 
It's the exact opposite of inauthenticity or being disingenuous. When you trust somebody, you know, there's something there. You might have love for that person or you trust them enough to the point where you're letting that person lay you down on an operating table and open your body up and cut you up and do a surgery. I mean, that is a ridiculous level of trust to put into another human being. It so, is. Right? So when that gets tied up with selfish interests and selfish motives, like wanting to maximize profit or do surgeries because you get forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 for a surgical procedure, that becomes a problem. So now we're getting into the area of, for me, you know, um, materialism and how our social economic system drives and fuels a lot of these attitudes because medicine used to be an art. Healing used to be an art. It used to be an art for me back in the day. Doctors would do home visits. They would go to people's homes and meet with their families and have dinner with them and talk to them. They were integrated into the community. When you were sick in bed, they would come to your room by your bedside. Those were the days where medicine was an art. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I'm just making some comments here, you know. And a lot of these services have been commodified. They're turned into business-making enterprises. So it becomes difficult to separate out the selfish interests of somebody wanting to just make money versus the actual pure service of trying to actually help another human being or uplift another human being or serve another human being, not because you want anything from them, but because it's in your heart. That's what you want to do. It all, it all gets tangled up. It does. And it, you, everything that you said, it just, it's the greed, you know, it's, the, it's, it's what our society um, pushes. It's what we've normalized in so many different ways. And it, it, when you do think about what medicine used to be, or the relationships that you used to have with your doctor. Now you don't even have that, you know, it's, you know, nothing against city MD, but I, I don't know the last time that I saw an internal, um, you know, my, my internal, my internalist, you know, for my primary care needs, I just go to city MD, right. You know, and, and everything is just being bought out by larger systems. Um, we're controlled by, you know, who's in network, who's out of network, you know, we're making decisions for our health that are not prioritized by health decisions. You know, it's other right. factors that are factoring in. So right. it's tough. And I feel bad for, for people here. I am in healthcare and I'm, and I'm lost on a lot of this stuff. So I, I can only imagine um, the average person who may not have time to research, you know, some natural remedies, you know, that they can take or, you know, research a particular um, drug. Cause like you said, some may be beneficial. But others may not be so. Well, you touched upon it there mm -hmm. when you said, "How do we know what? What was the words you used? How do we know what's good for us and right. what's bad for us?" Right. You know that that that's that's called to me that's called wisdom. The basic wisdom of what harms us, and what elevates us, and lifts us up, or is good for our well-being, in today's society and culture, for whatever reason, has been lost. It's, 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 it's a very strange paradox, the times we're living in, because you have all this medical science and technology. We can go to other planets. We can fly to other planets. We can create organs in laboratories, and yet we don't even understand what's good for us and what's not good for us. How do you 
it, it, it's a very perplexing situation. Is it's it very laziness? It, I'm sorry. I was going to say, you mentioned trust. People can sit back and say, out of their convenience, oh, well, I trust this doctor. Mm-hmm. But do you think it's a bit of laziness? Because I think it's a bit of laziness that people don't take initiative and want to learn about what they're putting into their body and what well, they're having what done to their body. Lazy? Let, let's, let's, let's go with that. I think that could be part of the answer. But what, what, what is it that makes somebody this sense of apathy, not wanting to do anything or being lazy? Where does that come from? Why are people not motivated to act on their own well-being? That's a language I don't speak. <laughs> I couldn't. I, I, I can't tell you for me. I, I'm looking up everything. I'm, I'm, I'm the type of person I go into it. If everybody says, if, if the powers that be say go right, I need to know what's left. Yeah. Like just, just because I don't trust any of it. I don't trust any of it. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I just don't trust it. So Mm -hmm. therefore, I'm going to do more research, just like anything else that I'm not sure about. And it'll either lead me in a direction where it's like, oh, yeah, boom, this is definitely spot on. Or it's going to say, ah, I'm not sure about that. I need to give that a little more time. But that's just me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the issue of trust is something that comes up a lot in, in therapy, actually, in psychotherapy and in the mental health space. Because oftentimes you're working with people, individuals who have a lot and myself included i have a lot of difficulty trusting people so i'm not by any means immune or an expert on anything i'm just a guy (laughs) you know but uh it's a very central issue you know which actually relates to i think our patterns of thinking feeling and doing so i like to think about it as human beings having three basic capacities a mind capacity a heart capacity and a will capacity and every human being shares these equally, right? And, and not equally, but in different proportions, but we all have them. And this mind capacity allows us to unravel truth, to discover truth, to understand things, to solve problems, to think logically, to think clearly, right? To work to progressively eliminate our cognitive biases that we all have, or various forms of prejudices that we all have. Our heart capacity is an emotional capacity. It's a capacity for feeling, for connection, for love. And our will capacity is a capacity for acting, for doing, for action. So it's the thinking, feeling, and doing capacity that every human being has. And it seems to me like, again, going back to kind of what's going on in the world we're living in today, the society is so fragmented. Our our world is so divided and fragmented and broken up it's no mystery to me that we as individuals are also fragmented. And that even dovetails back to the medical healthcare system, which is highly, highly fragmented. To give one simple example, the mind and body are disconnected in the current medical disease model, right? So mental health and emotional health and well-being is not integrated into physical health. They're kept separate as if they're two different things. But the mind always affects the body, and the body always affects the mind, 100% of the time, all the time. And if you don't believe that, you do a simple thought experiment. You sit here in your chair, and you visualize, just think about a lion or a tiger or some ferocious animal. 
jumping into your office suddenly out of nowhere. And this thing jumps on top of you and it's digging its claws into your chest and it's salivating on you and it wants to kill you. I mean, this ferocious thing can take your life easily, overpowers you completely, right? You start thinking about this, which is an abstract thought in your own mind. And you'll find that what starts to happen, if you actually think about it, your heartbeat starts to go up. Your heart literally starts to beat faster. Your blood pressure literally starts to go up. Your breathing rate starts to change. Physiological changes start to happen in your body because of something you were thinking. And that's, um, you touched on a bunch of different points and you're spot on. I, I remember my mom going to get her blood pressure checked and just her being nervous for the test shot her, shot her numbers up and, or shot them down, whichever one she, it was, it, it was just because, you know, this nervousness that you're describing. So it, it, it's, I don't know why, you know, they're so fragmented when it comes to, you know, the body and mental health, you know, you always hear people, that's another issue that I have, you know, with, um, not to pick on the pharma companies, but, you know, we always hear about, we know that there's business when it comes to um, certain aspects of healthcare. And if they can tell you to take this, this, this pill, this is the quick fix, then there's a lot more business and money to be made rather than telling you to make sure that you're going out and walking a couple miles a day, going out and getting sunshine, um, going out and just doing active things that are going to put your body in the right spot because addressing one without the other, Mm -hmm. it it just makes no sense. Like Mm -hmm. it's, like you said, they're, they're one and the same. They both impact each other. But for whatever reason, even, even when you looked at, um, you know, over COVID, you know, over, over COVID, it, nothing said to, Hey, make sure that if we're in the house, most of us are probably going to be vitamin D deficient. Make sure you're taking your vitamin mm-hmm. D, take some vitamin mm-hmm. C. Hey, go out, be by yourself, but go outside, maybe break a little sweat, get some mm-hmm. sunshine. None of this stuff was being told to us, which then make somebody like me remember go back to the black and white say like look at them like they're, they're even more lying about it so you know it puts this stuff in our brain when when i see that they're not addressing everything from a, what i would call an honest approach mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah which ties back to the incentives and, and the materialism and a lot of these other topics you know interestingly you say that i wrote an article um sometime last year in response to covid and In that article, I was outlining a few sort of mental health tips and practices. And actually the first thing I recommended was for people to get out of the house, to exercise, to exercise, and to get out of the house and start moving their bodies. Because that's extremely important for your mental and physical health and well-being. You don't need a pill. (laughs) Go out of that, you gotta go out and move your body and exercise, right? Of course. Why do you think that and maybe I'm asking a silly question. I don't know. But why do you think when they were doing all, you know, the news, it felt like during that time period, all that was on was obviously, you know, about the pandemic, um, about COVID, about, you know, hey, are we going to get um, a shot out, a vaccine out? Why do you think that nobody pushed for a lot of these common things that everybody can do and should be doing whether they're sick or not? whether it's COVID or not, but why do you think that these things weren't 
pushed. Like why can why can a shot be mandated, but them not say, hey, you need to make sure that you're going outside. You need to make sure that you're taking taking vitamin D. We're sending, we're, um, you know, releasing vitamin D with more, stronger pills. Like, I don't, I don't know. We're sending them to everybody's home. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of, I think there's a, there's a lot to that, right? There's layers to these sorts of things. Um, one thing that comes to my mind, right? I mean, obviously there's, there's, there's economic incentives here that we're talking about. That's, that's part of the equation. Politics is part of the equation in the polarized world we're living in now, it unfortunately is leaking out into all these spaces that it has no business being in. But that's what we're seeing, right? So that's part of it. And it goes back to, for me, you know, in my, in my opinion, my understanding, a lot of it goes back to a medical disease model again. It's a current paradigm, a scientific paradigm of thinking about the world and what illness and disease is. So if you have a virus in your body, right? It used to be a big debate in, in the biological sciences and medical communities as to whether viruses are living organisms or not. And it's actually still debated, mm. okay? So one, one group says that viruses are living because they use a host to replicate themselves and reproduce and create more copies. Another group says, no, 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 viruses are not living organisms because they cannot reproduce on their own. By definition, an organism is something that is capable of reproducing on its own. It doesn't need a host, right? So if you think of any other organism, it doesn't need to go latch onto a host to reproduce, right? So this was a big debate. And the thinking basically goes that if there's a virus in your body that's a pathogen, right? That's a disease, that's an illness. The only way to cure that disease or that illness is by taking some sort of a drug or medication for it. So of course, the only way to fix this thing is to dish out a vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. So it goes along with this same paradigm, right? And we're going very deep right now with this because this is a paradigm that pervades really the Western world. This is not just the US, right? I say that with respect to the fact that you know, vaccines also do work. It's not like vaccines don't work. Vaccines are designed to work and they do scientifically work. They have side effects and they have problems. Of course they do. But they also provide a lot of benefit too. But the wider question is why aren't we recommending other things as well? Why is it solely or only a medication or a vaccine or something like that? Right. That's and that's the where, question. Yeah. And that's where the trust comes into play for me because it's hard for me to to trust something or somebody that is withholding certain information that they know will aid the even if you take the vaccine the vaccine this these things are still going to help you they're still going to help you increase your immune system and strengthen all these areas when they don't push that that's what makes me question everything and it becomes dangerous for somebody like me because here, what if my mindset is, oh, I don't trust them at all, so I'm not mm -hmm. taking anything from them. But what if that's something that can really help me? Right. Or what if, and what if I'm telling right. my parents, I don't trust it, I don't trust it, and that's something that they may need. So it's, it's tough. See, we got to do a lot of thinking for ourselves. It's, I guess it's like politics, like you said. <laughs> well, you know, one, one thing I think about is, and I, and I talk to my clients, you know, in therapy about this sort of thing a lot. So 
this, you know, this can breed a lot of anxiety because you're constantly put into a situation where you have to worry about how things are going to harm you or hurt you and things that you really shouldn't have to worry about. You shouldn't have to worry about whether a medication is going to hurt you or harm you necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. That's going to breed a lot of tension yeah. and anxiety for people, right? So what I like to say is, look, any medication people take, even if it's Advil or Tylenol, has side effects. There is a percentage chance that Advil or ibuprofen or some other type of medication creates liver damage. Especially if you take a high dose or take too much of it, it can create liver damage. That's known. It says it on the back of the bottle, right? Yet people still take it for headaches, yeah. right? So my, my thinking is the following. There is some degree of risk associated with any type of medication that you take. The question is, what's an acceptable risk and what's not? Are you going to die by taking an avalotalinol? Probably not. The chance of that happening is, is, is exceedingly, exceedingly low, such that it's not something the average person would really have to worry about, right? But there's other medications that have very severe or serious side effects, so before taking one of those, you gotta, you got to pump the brakes and say, all right, do I really need to be taking this thing? What are the pros and cons, right? How much is this going to help me, and how much does it have the potential to hurt me or harm me? So, for instance, you know, if somebody has a, a type of diabetes that's insulin dependent, they need insulin. They're going to die without insulin. If you don't have enough insulin in your bot in your in your bloodstream, your pancreas is not producing that. The insulin concentration, the sorry, the glucose concentration in your blood will spike up, and your body can't tolerate that. You're you're going to die from that eventually. So you don't have a choice. You got to take insulin. Wow. You see, so now now you're dependent on a pharmaceutical company that produces insulin, right? But you see, in that, in that situation, the insulin, you can look at this from a lot of different angles, David, but in that situation, the insulin is saving your life. You actually need it. Mm -hmm. You need it. Now, the question of whether the insulin is priced fairly in a just way, that's, the, that's another, right. you know what I mean? Right. And, and you mentioned earlier about somebody's mindset going in, whether or not they're worrying about whether something's going to harm them, um, maybe risk killing them um, that's going to impact however you know whether they take the medicine or not and that brings up it, it kind of brought a thought to mind where with the placebo test that they used to do and this was something that i could I, I always had discussions especially you know around the pandemic time and everything where you know i always i thought it was an issue where if you tell people this is going to be worse than this flu or this, you know, whatever. And this amount of people are going to die. And that's all people are seeing on TV. And people don't have the interaction, the human interaction that we need. People yes. don't have the sunlight that we need. People are just sitting down, not doing anything. All these different areas health-wise that we're already lacking. Then you throw in the fear and the worry. To me, of course, more people are going to be in trouble health-wise. So... That was always something that stood out. Now, I'm not saying that you sit back and act like nothing's happening, um, but there has to be some type of balance because mm -hmm. to me, and this is obviously not a medical expert, not a scientist, never had any dealings in pharmaceuticals, but to me, 
fear can kill just as many people as any flu or disease that, or whatever else, in my opinion. That's what not you, a, yeah. My brother, that's not even an opinion. That's just a fact. Mm. What you just said there, you're just speaking truth. That, that, that's a fact. So my, my expertise, my, my personal specialty in mental health is actually post-traumatic stress disorder. So that most of the people that come to me have PTSD for various reasons. Um, PTSD and anxiety-related difficulties are my specialty. In PTSD, what is essentially happening is the brains, you see I have those brains behind me there. I I'm see. Big, I love the mind and the brain, man. It's just a beautiful, incredible thing that allows us to do so many wonderful things. Anyway, uh, in, in PTSD, um, what is essentially happening is the threat response system, the fear-based system in the brain that's called the amygdala is highly, highly overactivated. It's overstimulated. So people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder essentially have a sense of hypervigilance where they're constantly scanning their environment for threats. They're in a constant state of fear, basically. And the if you look at the, some of the data and statistics, the correlation of people with post-traumatic stress disorder and other anxiety-related disorders and suicidality is actually quite high. Okay, so quite literally fear, the emotion of fear taken to a certain point, to a certain limit, leads to loss of life. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's, true. That's, that's tough. I, um, it reminds me of a study I saw where they were looking at babies. They were studying babies, and they had a group of, let's say, 100 babies. 50 um, were you know, malnourished, and the other 50, but the, the 50 that were malnourished, they were still given love by their, mm -hmm. by their parents. Mm -hmm. The other 50 that were given the, the best nutrition, they weren't given any love, any affection, anything. And after the study, they found out that the malnourished babies were healthier than the babies that were getting the proper nutrition but didn't receive any love. So it's um, all of this stuff, the energy, the emotions, like we're, we're meant to connect with each other. Yes, That's we what, are. You know, and, it, and we just can't deny it. I know it doesn't come up in science as much as, you know, we'd like to think or at least our understanding. But mm -hmm. it's um, when you hear this stuff, it's mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's mind blowing. And then mm -hmm. when you talk about mental health with PTSD, um, it's obviously a lot of our, our military, yes. um, you know, the, the brave, you know, our, our brave soldiers, they go through it tremendously. And even when you think about, you know, just on a, I couldn't even say a 1% of that with sports, you know, when you're involved in something and then you no longer have it, there's such a fear that builds up that alters a lot of our decision-making and mm -hmm. how we think. So I can, I mm -hmm. can't even imagine, I'm not going to say I can only imagine, yeah. I can't imagine what some people are going through when it comes to PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very difficult thing for a lot of people to live with, you know, but I, I, I will say this, um, fear and any emotion in and of itself is not necessarily good or bad. It serves an adaptive function. Mm -hmm. So here's the crazy part. And there's so much stigma and misunderstanding around mental health that one thing I like to routinely do is talk about some of those stigmas because 
there's a lot of misunderstanding, honestly, about what mental health is, about treatment for mental health, about if you have a mental health condition that means you're crazy, all these kinds of things. Um, something like fear, take the emotion of fear for a second, right? Mm -hmm. If you didn't have fear, you'd be in a lot of trouble, actually. That's true. Right? Very true. Very Think about true. it. I mean, all the times that something that could potentially harm you or hurt you, you, if you didn't pick up on those things, you were not receiving the signals to know that your life could be in danger, you would just sit there and you would, you would have gotten killed. Very true. Okay, so fear serves a very important adaptive function in human beings, and that's to protect us. It's actually to keep us safe. The problem is when this fear becomes chronic and long-term and imbalanced. Mm. The problem is not fear in and of itself. It's too much fear. It's chronic, unchecked fear. When you're living in a state of fear, that's toxic for your body. So people with PTSD, for example, and this touches on the mind-body connection, they have a high correlation with other medical, physical medical diseases and illnesses, autoimmune diseases, muscle waste and muscle problems, all sorts of other things, because their bodies are under a state of constant stress. The fear produces hormones like cortisol in the body. And so their bodies are so stressed all the time that it starts to break their body down. Wow. So this is the connection between the mind, the emotions and the body. And these are the types of things that you work on in therapy. It's a holistic integrated approach where you're looking at the whole human being. Yeah, it, it has to be holistic. Um, I think most healing does it just us in general, how we move around throughout the day when we approach it from a total body holistic um, approach, it's um, that's the only way that we find answers in my opinion or the best answers, maybe the best ways to go about healing, I should say. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, we definitely live in – listen to me talking about it. I'm, I'm not a mental health expert, but that's the, that's the world that we live in where people think that they know more about mental health. Um, I, I hear people throwing around terms and stuff. Oh, that person's a narcissist, this person. This, this. You hear it all the time in society. And yep. it's, it's one of those things where, for me, it's funny because this is the, the – this is what I always get. Like when I always, I'm, I'm big on talking about fitness and how people need to work out and how people need to be mm -hmm. at a healthy um, weight and just eat all, all these things. And people will always say, I always get the people on Instagram or something like that saying, well, you're, you're not a doctor and you, you don't work with this particular person. So you can't evaluate them. You can't say that they need to be healthier. But on the flip side, when it comes to mental health, everybody seems to be an expert. Everybody could say oh, that person's bipolar. This person's you, you hear it all the time and nobody, yeah. you know, it's kind of just accepted. So it's uh, mental health to me seems to be one of those things that it's pushed on us, but we don't have the foundational understanding of it. Yes. So we run with it without actually understanding it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a, that makes a heck of a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would add to that, that just, you know, what's fundamentally different, David, about mental health when you think about it, right, is the following. Let's say that you have got, somebody has got a heart condition or a broken arm, right? Let's make it simple. 
somebody's got a broken arm. Well, that broken arm is physically, you know, visible. Everybody can see that, you know, that you've got a broken arm. It comes up on an x-ray scan. The doctors and the orthopedics and whoever it is that treats it, they don't have a problem seeing it and detecting it. When you're talking about mental health, though, it's, it's something that has to do with mind, body, emotion, spirit, right? It tends to have an invisible aspect to it that other people cannot see. So you can't walk around the street and tell me who's got PTSD, can you? You can't do that. The person is silently suffering. They're going home every day and they're in turmoil inside their body and in their mind. That's how they feel, okay? And they're, they're very, very silently suffering from that, okay? But it's not visible to other people. So it gets highly misrepresented, misunderstood, right? Whereas if you've got a broken arm, I mean, you've literally got a cast. Yeah. Everybody in the world sees that you've got a cast. They even come up to you and what do they do? They sign your cast, right? Yep. Yep. And give you well wishes and hope you get better, hope it, right? People right. don't do that for somebody who's depressed or anxious or who has PTSD, though, because those people silently suffer. Their pain is, is emotional, so it's not visible. You see, and so that that is an important fundamental difference between mental and physical well-being or mental and physical health. And that drives a lot of the stigma and problems because you can't directly see it. So people make all these assumptions about it that are really incorrect. Which going back to your word trust, it makes it even that much more important to be mm -hmm. working with somebody that you can trust, to be mm -hmm. confiding in, in an expert that you do trust because I can go, if I break my arm, I can just send this x-ray <laughs> to somebody else. I don't even have to go to a doctor. I can go to, you know, MRI facility. Hey, what do you think about, you know what I mean? It's easier to see, like you said, but when it comes to mental health, it's, um, it, it's a lot of trust being involved because, and, and once somebody tells you that you're something, um, now you, you, you tend to accept it when it's coming from somebody that you trust and now or, how or are you going to authority go? figure? Right? right, right, right. So how do you go about it afterwards? You know, now where it's like, Oh, I I'm diagnosed with this. Um, it goes back to me for like, I remember with ADD and then ADHD, everybody that I ever, <laughs> everybody that ever got, I know Everybody's they ever got, got tested. It, right? <laughs> everybody got, Everybody's like, got it. Yeah. It's like, did you, do you forget <laughs> stuff every once in a while? Or did you, and, and I hate to make fun of the, the, the test like that, but seriously, I've talked to people who have taken the test and they're like, listen, like the, the stuff that I'm asking, like, what are the questions? I'm like, damn, that's kind of like everybody falls into that. So it's, I don't know. It's tough. It's tough. Well, we over pathologize and, and I actually, talk about this a lot in my in my opinion any therapist worth their salt should really spend time in therapy supporting your clients and talking about them that when they when they have a mental health diagnosis when i diagnose somebody with depression for example it's called major depressive disorder right you spend a lot of time helping the person understand what that means and that this label doesn't define you this is not who you are that conversation is crucial because some people will over identify with the label and they'll start to see themselves as a broken person or I'm a person that's depressed or I'm a person that has PTSD. No, 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 no. That's not who you are. Mm -hmm. 
if you're going to see yourself that way, then I've limited you. I've damaged you, actually. Mm-hmm. I've actually mm-hmm. hurt you. That's not who you are. That's an experience you're having. It's something you're going through that you want to heal from. But it's not who you are. You're not defined by some difficult thing going on in your life. That doesn't define who you are. That conversation is very important to have with people. Otherwise, we over-identify with these kinds of labels and we limit ourselves. You have a very unique perspective. I wish everybody, (laughs) if if anybody needs to ask any questions, I, I hope that they can talk to somebody who has your mindset and perspective on things because uh, I fear, it's the skeptic in me, I fear that people are not getting that. You know, people are not getting that. And I don't know whether it's because then you become more dependent on on the quote-unquote expert, but I, I, I just don't know what it is. And, and right now, and you actually wrote an article um, what, uh, discussing trauma, discussing trauma and this kind of all comes full circle in my opinion because we live in a world where you know everybody's talking about mental health and then everybody's talking about this word trauma uh-huh everybody uh-huh. says like oh you they've had trauma here trauma there and it's still and it comes back to one of those things where it's just like we're saying it but I don't really know what it, you know, I, I don't know <laughs> what, what exactly is trauma. Like, we, we don't know what's traumatic on the scale of, you know, is it over here? Is it over there? We don't know that. And you discussed a lot of key things in that article that I thought were great takeaways. And, um, you know, maybe you can give us just, you know, a little bit of insight on how you see trauma and, um, you know, how you would go about, you know, addressing. Obviously, it's going to be different for everybody, but just your overall approach to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Definitely the term trauma has been overused. Yeah, I think that's that's for sure, Uh, especially in social media circles on TikTok and everyone's (laughs) throwing out the word trauma to basically it's basically become a substitute word for something is difficult. So anything (laughs) difficult is traumatic. I'm sorry, I don't mean to, but I agree. Right? I agree. It's the victim mentality. Yeah. It, it, well, yes, I agree. It, yes. Yeah. That mm-hmm. ties into some victim mentality, which is very destructive, actually. Mm-hmm. It's very destructive because you, you, you see yourself as a fragile being mm-hmm. rather than a person who's a noble being and is capable of uplifting yourself and overcoming. See, So you fragilize yourself. You become this fragile little thing. Right. Wow. Anyway, that's a whole that's a whole other discussion. And, and, and people will will comfort you and do all these things that they I guess they're they're doing it to be nice. or they think it's the right thing, but it just sends you more down that path of just feeling weaker and weaker and weaker. It's and, at least that's what I see. It's, it's very disempowering. Yeah, it is very disempowering. And on, on another level, if if I am a victim if I see myself as a victim of something, and now that I'm a victim of something, right? Let's say um, somebody did something to me and I'm a victim of something, right? And now I have a mental health struggle, mental health difficulty, I'm suffering, I'm in pain, and I am a victim. What tends to happen a lot of the time is the individuals 
what's called locus of control or responsibility shifts. If I'm a victim, then it's not on me to heal or to improve my well-being or to get through this. It's on the perpetrator. It's on the person who hurt me. They're the one who has to change or do something. So I'm powerless. There's nothing I can do. I'm the victim. And the person who caused it is the one who has to change. It's incredibly disempowering then because I'm the person that's suffering and hurting. And rather than figuring out a way to heal myself, I'm preoccupied with the person who did it. Lame game. It becomes very, very, I see this a lot in therapy. It's one of the things that is, is very important to help clients through. And I, of course, I integrate a Baha'i-inspired approach here called the integrated nobility model that sees an incredible potential in every human being. I don't care who you are, what your race, religion, creed, background, orientation, none of that stuff matters. We're noble beings that are capable of incredible, incredible things. We all are. And we have to tap into that inner nobility, recognize it, and use that virtue, that capacity inside of ourselves to transform our own lives and our society. You, you wrote about inner nobility in one of your articles. Yes. And it, it's funny. We, we don't know what we don't know, but once we learn something, it, you see it. You can see it. It's like when you buy a car. You start to see more of them on the road. So when Shaga and, you know, got a reference, you know, the, 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 the old podcast with Shaga, mm-hmm. to where that was such a focal point of inner nobility, and why it establishes an important foundation in all of us mm-hmm. that can be used as we go into any journey. And it does exactly what you just said. And obviously my, my understanding of it is new. You know, it's a new concept for me. But for you all with the Baha'i faith, uh, it, it's something that is empowering in every step of the way along mm-hmm. this journey. Uh, because it's a reminder of foundationally, I have the ability inside of me to mm-hmm. get through anything, to accomplish mm-hmm. anything. And mm-hmm. that, to me, that's the superpower. It's like mm-hmm. we, we grow up watching these superhero movies and you know cartoons and stuff. But the belief, our inner nobility, that's probably the, the, the strongest power um, that we all can have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more, you know. It's human beings are on it. I think are on a very deep quest to figure out who they are. And every every human being is on that quest, whether whether they know it or not. Essentially, some people don't even know they're on that journey, but they really are. And so the way we actually view ourselves, who we are, and what we're doing here, ultimately has a lot to do with how we view the world and how we view other people. So it seems to me that a lot of people are out there. It's what I call the pursuit of self-worth. They're trying to do all sorts of different things to prove to themselves that they're worthy or valuable. And Baha'is come along and say, wait a second, your inner nobility is intrinsic. It's inherent. You don't have to seek it elsewhere. It's in you. It's already in you, actually. You have all these capacities for love, knowledge, truth, justice, beauty, goodness. These things are all inside of you, actually, as a human being, as a person. 
you've already got all that in you. Now right? imagine it's if every kid is told that. Right. Sorry? Now, I was going to say, now imagine if every child, if every adult is reminded about that. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, everybody's dealing with something. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of, there are a lot of things that we all can feel like a victim in if we decide that's the route that we want to go and we can justify it in our own head. But just the constant reminder of that inner nobility of what's already inside of us, um, it, it, it can't do anything but empower us. Mm-hmm. It doesn't allow us to go down that road that even even if it is justified, mm-hmm. you know, even if it is justified going over there, it's not going to solve anything. Yes. So therefore, the inner nobility is giving you the tools and skills and the belief to go out and and solve whatever your issue is just by seeing it from a different perspective because you see yourself as different. That's yes. that's at least my understanding. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. It's a very empowering model informed by, by the Baha'i spiritual practice, Baha'i spiritual understanding. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Baha'is yeah. view everybody that way, essentially, which ties in to this concept that I think you and Shara touched upon last time about the oneness of humanity. Yeah. How, and we have to, we, the Baha'i faith, everybody that I meet that is a part of the Baha'i faith, you all see I'm always appreciative of your perspective on life, perspective on self, how you treat others. It, it's a it's a very different energy than what I'm used to, and that what I've come to just see in this world that we live in. But it goes back to you know I see what I believe is 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 real. Like I, I keep seeing this car because I have that car. So if I'm if I'm seeing that a lot of negativity or if I'm I'm going to assume that everything is negative. And with the Baha'i faith, uh, it just is a very realistic, a very realistic approach to life. That's what I see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I'm very appreciative and I, I would love for you to kind of maybe, maybe give, give the viewers just some insight on what your journey was to becoming Baha'i, because I'm sure that that may be able to help some people as well. Yeah, and that's an interesting question in a lot of ways, not not because about me, but actually today, today's actually a very special day for Baha'is. Um, Baha'is do a 19-day fast where we abstain from eating and drinking. Today's the last day of that fast, actually. And tomorrow is Noruz, which literally translates to new day. So this 19-day fast coincides with the beginning of spring, which represents growth, represents change, represents renewal. Um, my, my just wanted to kind of throw that in there. So I've been fasting uh, over 19 days and a lot of people are like, you're crazy. You're not eating, you're not drinking. And I tell them the state of mind, the clarity, the energy that I have emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically is so much higher because I'm fasting actually. Wow. It's okay. We got to get into that. Um, that's one of those things that as soon as you say it, it intimidates a lot of us. Um, can you describe what, what that particular fast looks like? And then I want to dive into the renewal that you mentioned with spring, but first I want you to touch on just what the fasting looks like. Sure. Sure. So, um, we fast in March, Baha'is all over the world are fasting, uh, throughout the month of March. Um, and so it typically starts March 1st or March 2nd. It's a 19-day fast. 
So you abstain from eating or drinking anything, basically from sunrise to sunset. So we get up very early around 5 a.m. or, you know, 5.30 or 6 or whatever, eat breakfast, you say prayers, you meditate, and then for the rest of the day, you don't eat or drink anything until the sun comes down. And the spiritual idea behind this is, which is interesting is there's a lot of scientific data about intermittent fasting, actually. I'm sure you're aware of that. You're, you're a health expert. You're a guy who's very much an exercise health expert. You're a deep guy on that stuff. So I'm, um, I'm no expert, but I appreciate the compliment. I just, <laughs> I just learned from smart people that are in my, my circle like you. So that's, I'll leave it there. It's mutual. <laughs> yeah, it's mutual. We're always learning from each other. That's what life is about. So um, where was I? Um, the fast. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we have this 19-day fast. The spiritual principle, David, the spiritual concept behind it is that it's not about the eating, really. It's not necessarily about abstaining from food or drink. It's more about the fact that, you know, when you think about it, right, if you were to meditate on this, how much time and energy a day do you think goes into food? Thinking about food and eating. A whole lot. Okay. Literally, right. that's that's most people's highlights of their days. Right. Period. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So let's think about this for a second, right? So we got most people, you know, you're eating three meals a day on average, a breakfast, lunch, and a dinner, let's just say, right? You might have snacks in between or you might do small meals if you have a better health regimen. But let's say most people are eating three meals a day. You have to cook the meal, right? You have to do the dishes. You have to do the cleaning. You have to sit down. I mean, everything that goes into meal preparation and cleaning and cooking, all that stuff. You're talking a significant, significant portion of every single day just worrying about what you're going to put in your stomach. Your, your focus is on that. So according to the Baha'i faith, we have a physical life but also a spiritual life. So the real purpose, logically, behind the fast is that when you're not thinking so much about food, your concentration and focus is not so much about what you're eating. It opens up all this other energy, mentally, in your mind, and spiritually. So you start thinking about other things. It's a process of purification of the mind, of the body, of the spirit. Because rather than spending all that energy thinking about food and what you're going to eat, it opens up other pathways to other things. So I woke up this morning, you know, and throughout the fast, meditating about how can I be of greater service to people? I wasn't thinking about what my lunch was going to be. I literally sat there for 30 minutes in a deep meditation. And my wife and I do a lot of service and community building activities. And I was thinking to myself, how can I be of better service? And specifically to a group of young men that I, that I mentor. I was thinking about these guys and I'm like, how can I help these guys to a higher degree even? And I started to meditate on that, right? If I wasn't fasting, I would have been thinking, what am I going to have for lunch? <laughs> I want the cheeseburger or yep. something, you know? Yep. It put me in a, in a completely different state of being, different state of mind. So... It's, so you I, I can't say how true that is even in my experience uh, you know I 
haven't had meat, fish, or eggs in a while. And what it did was it taught me how much I look forward to eating, uh, you know, when I'm eating the meat, fish, and eggs, and how much time goes into and excitement goes into, oh, we're eating at that steakhouse tonight, or, oh, you're, we're, we're having this for lunch. Like, yo, who's ordering? All these different things. And when I stopped, because I don't really look forward to eating as much now, because you don't get as excited about, well, maybe I'll get there, but right now, you know, it's not as exciting about, you know, oh, I'm about to have these veggies. It just doesn't really, and, and me, I typically eat the same thing. So it's kind of like, ah, you know, some lentils, some veggies, whatever. I get excited about Beyond Meat, you know, everyone, which is probably worse than the actual meat. Neither here nor there. But um, it, it, it showed me that now that I'm not focusing on the food, like you said, um, I, I always, when people say, like, hey, how do you feel when, you, when you're not eating meat? And I say, like, well, actually, you know, there's a clarity there. There's a, there's a certain level of clarity there. And I didn't know what to really attribute it to, but it makes sense what you're saying. I don't even think about food. You know, I'm not thinking about food at least as much as I used to. I used to always think about food. And now it's just kind of, you know, that that time is just spent or that that energy is just spent in different ways. So Mm -hmm. I, I can only imagine if you're doing it, you know, just a concentrated fast 19 days with meditation it has to unlock a lot of doors and, and just exactly. unleash a lot of powers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it unlocks a lot of doors. That's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bas- basically, that's what it is in my in my limited understanding. That's that's basically what it is. Yeah. There's a saying we have in, in, in the mental health world that I love. One of my favorite sayings where attention goes, energy flows. Where attention, where attention goes, goes, energy flows. Energy flows. Wherever you decide to put your attention, you're going to give more energy to that thing. That's that's a simple statement, but it's actually profound. When you meditate on it deeper, it's very profound. Wherever you choose to put your mind and your attention, you're going to give more energy to that thing, whether you realize it or not, undoubtedly. Right? And so the fasting process has a lot to do with that. So as Baha'is, we're always thinking about how do we improve the spiritual well-being of humanity, of society, as well as the material? They both go hand in hand together. Like a lamp and the light inside of the lamp. You need both. You can't just have a lamp that's empty. you got to have light inside of it, too. That's like a spiritual and a material balance. That's, and so um, the, the idea yeah. is to have these higher spiritual thoughts, right, that are not selfish and try our best to reduce our ego and not make things about ourselves. And so our thoughts, the energy of our thinking goes to a different place as well. It's the service that you talked about, the service based. Here you are, you know, you're meditating, thinking, how can you, you know, you're asking for, like you said, where the energy goes or, or where the attention goes, the energy flows. Energy flows. So your attention is on how can I be a better service to these young men? Mm-hmm. You're asking that. And then you're going to receive something in return. That's just mm-hmm. the, the way energy works, I'm assuming. So, hmm it's um there's there's a there's a lot of different ways that um the Baha'i faith has uh, helped me and my understanding of just life purpose perspective and the the, the more I learn about it I, like I I always I always say it's just that I, I use the word realistic and practical mm-hmm. but it's so much more than that it's just that's just the easiest way for me to describe it but it just puts things in proper perspective for me. 
Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. 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 So I know I know I've kept you, but um, if if you have a few more minutes, uh, you know we'd love to continue it. But you know we can always do you know a part two after this. There, there's a lot for us to still dive into. I feel like. Um, but I, I can't take up too much of your time because I'm sure you'll, uh, you know, be needing to provide some services to others as well, not just here, us here at Big Fish. So, um, but but you are appreciated. I appreciate you. Appreciate being on the podcast, and I'm really looking forward to continuing to having more discussions about other things. Yeah. Yeah, 100. percent So we started with, you know, talking a little bit about the pharmaceutical industry. Then we got into the mental health aspect. Uh, we we touched on you know the fitness and the body, and then we you know finished off with the spiritual aspect. Uh, wasn't necessarily planned to go that way, but you know that's how it should go. You know, body, mind, body, soul. So um, I, I'm I'm very I'm just very much appreciative. There's there's a lot of stuff that um, is put out in society by quote unquote experts for monetary gains rather than just what they're supposed to be knowledge and healing and hearing you is very refreshing. So uh, I'm really hoping that we can continue this, you know, make this something, you know, that uh, I don't know, we can continue to tap into because I'm sure with this, a lot of people are going to be asking me questions. A lot of people are going to be putting questions. So I look forward to sharing those with you and uh, getting your feedback. Uh, I would, I would love that. I would absolutely love that. So my last question for you What's next? Oh. What's next? Oh, I can't man. let you go without saying what's next. Uh, you're big on, you're, we're, all, we're talking about the power of energy, the power of, um, you know, projection. So, uh, you know, just uh, what, what, what's next? You know, what, what, where's your attention going to be? Where's your energy going to be flowing? You know, um, I'm, I've been thinking more and more about how to affect change on higher levels. Because my, my work as a professionally, as a clinician, is very individual. I see people one-on-one all throughout the day, eight, nine hours a day, right? But it's very individualistic. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how to help create change on even higher, higher levels than that, than just individuals. It starts with the individual, but... The society also is a really important component. You can't separate individuals from the society in which they live. There's all sorts of forces that affect us, right? So I'm thinking more about societal level changes, you know, not just the individual. I love it. That's a very abstract answer, but. No, no, I I get it because everybody always says like, oh, how do you change? You just change yourself. You just change one person. But it would be nice to, you know, we, we, there's a lot of systems in place that lead us in the wrong direction. It would be nice to create a free-flowing system that leads us more in a positive direction. So that's what I'm hearing from you. I hope, I hope that's a proper interpretation, but you just trying to make just more of an impact, giving more, uh, providing more service, providing more service. That's what I hear from you, that's, and that's what that's, I appreciate. That's what it is, man. That's what it is. You know, We all have that capacity for love and service, and that's – that's what the world desperately needs today, I think. Now more than ever. Now, so, now more than ever. <laughs> so we're going to thank Alex, uh, you know, for being here. We're going to hold him to making sure that he joins us again. And this has just been a pleasure, brother. Um, 
thank you so much. And please tell people, you know, I guess one way that you can um, increase the service is to let people know where they can find you. Perhaps LinkedIn. I don't know if you want to give social medias, but, you know, let, let our audience know where they can uh, go to receive more of this energy. Sure, sure. So you can go to www.noblemindscounseling.com. And there's a lot of information on that site about a lot of different topics. I love it. I love it. All right. So with that, thank you again. And I'll be talking to you soon, brother. All right, brother. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you as well. (laughs) We here. Big fish shit. Welcome to the podcast. Hope y'all enjoy it. Hope y'all learn something. And most importantly, we hope y'all elevate. Let's get uh-huh. it. Big fish, hit a big lick. We gon' bet it right back and hit a big flip. We been up for a minute and we still lit. Get them cats going top, but we don't feel shit. We just giving y'all gems y'all can live with. Elevate your mind, never mind all the bullshit. Finna talk about stocks, we ain't worry about ops. First get the bread up and buy back the whole block. Ten toes down, we ain't never gonna stop. I'm a man of my word, I ain't never gonna flop. If I said it, then I meant it. Real ones gonna respect it, and it's still OG. It's in me, I'm represented.